This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm Marilyn Barefoot. On September the 8th, I had the chance to sit down with Duncan Sinclair, and we're thrilled to share this conversation with you today. Duncan is the elected chair of Deloitte Canada and Chile, and is also a member of the Deloitte Global Board. Duncan is also the host of a podcast called Courage Incorporated. It's a podcast that he does in collaboration with the Walrus Lab. Duncan believes strongly that leadership is all about rolling up your sleeves and getting to work on shared values. Today, Duncan and I chat about what's next in this global economy and what has to happen with all the businesses who have been hit so significantly by a global pandemic. Please welcome Mr. Duncan Sinclair. I am honored to have with us today on Breaking Brave... Duncan Sinclair. Duncan is the chair of Deloitte Canada and Chile, also a member of the Deloitte Global Board, and the dean of Deloitte University North, which is where we met Duncan. Exactly. And I've had the pleasure of actually, quote unquote, teaching with you. And it was a joy. So welcome to Breaking Brave. Thank you for the opportunity of spending time. First of all, what is Deloitte, Duncan? What does Deloitte do in the context of who you are in the firm you you are chairman of? Well, I, I'll say that you know globally, Deloitte is an organization of three hundred and fifty thousand people around the world who share a common value of wanting to uh, achieve an impact that matters. And in order for for us to be able to do that and have that as sort of our guiding purpose, you know, the the notion of doing that in a manner that is uh, done ethically, done responsibly, done in a way that is respectful of the needs of our people, of our clients, of the communities in which we live is important. Professionally, our organization breaks down across five primary lines of business within a number of sub-offerings within those. We originally began our history over 176 years ago as what people would think of today as an audit and accounting firm. Uh, started by William Welsh Deloitte back in in the UK in the 1850s. From there, we've grown businesses with respect to helping people with matters related to taxation, with respect to issues of uh, financial transaction support, uh, which could be anything from M&A offerings to valuations to supporting people around disputes. We do work in areas of uh, risk management, which is everything, again, from issues of technology and cybersecurity through to broader-based risk management planning for an organization. 
And then we have a broader-based consultative business that really looks at issues of how an organization's strategy cascades into their operating model and different ways of, of doing that better down into the core uh, IT infrastructure that a business has and different ways in which we can help to optimize that and make it better. And so from my perspective, it's a great organization to have spent the last 33 years in. Uh, it's been a wonderful experience and opportunity and certainly for, for people who are interested in, in those areas of, um, of new opportunity for organizations and to support people in the way in which they want to go forward in life. Uh, I hope that Deloitte will always be a place that you'll think about. Thank you. One of the other things that caught my eye and that I've been uh, following closely is your podcast called Courage Inc. or Courage Incorporated. And that's done in collaboration with the Walrus Lab. Are you are you having fun doing the podcast stuff, Duncan? Yeah, you know, it's been great. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've been able to do with Courage Incorporated is to reach out to a number of different Canadians and get their perspectives on, you know, what has to evolve, what has to change in our society, and what kind of courageous decisions do we need to make in order to continue to make Canada one of the greatest countries to live and work in in the world. And so it's been a real honor to have the depth and breadth of people that we've been able to chat with. And I'm sure you find that, you know, the the richness of the discussions are are great. And it's a, it's a really fun way to sort of explore ideas that are important to our future. So yes, it's been, it's been great for me. And I'm sure, Marilyn, you're enjoying yours as well. I am. And thank you. During the pandemic, it's been such a great learning experience for me when you, when we can't be physically with people to be able to be with new people on a Zoom call on a podcast. I've learned so much and I've been so, so inspired. Let's dive in, Duncan, to, you know, making Canada one of the greatest countries in the world. And my subject, of course, is bravery. So in your opinion, what kind of bravery is going to be required by our leaders to get us back on our feet again, to to come out of this stronger than we went in? When you think about the world that we've lived through over the last 18 months, all of us have been challenged to understand the depth and breadth of change. And I don't think any of us perhaps fully appreciate it in the moment because we're just living through it. And if we go back to March of 2020 and we think about what we were all experiencing and the shop owners that had signs in the window that says, we'll be back here in two weeks and everything will be good again. And, you know, that wasn't true. It was a hope, right? And so I think what we've all learned through this period of time is that you have to think about scenarios, you have to think about choices, and you have to think about what are some of the fundamental principles that are really critical for you to hold on to within your own organization or within your own country and do the best you can to live up to those. And certainly in our organization, when we walked into the pandemic, we had no idea the implications that it would have, but there were some principles that grounded us. And the first one was we had to keep our people safe. We had to keep our people safe. And so the choices that we made in the early days of getting everybody home, getting them sheltered at home, and then figuring out how they could start to work productively from home, you know, was a big part of what we did at the beginning. We then had to understand what are the challenges that people are now experiencing because they are home? And what are all of the issues that continue to manifest itself as it went from days to weeks to months? And how did we support people through that? The second group of people we had to think about were our clients. We had to think about it in the context of, well, what are they living? What are they experiencing? What are they looking for? How do we have to show up differently to help them get through this? 
So I think in the context of it was a very real and very human experience for all of us to go through. In some ways, I think it's helped us to have a better understanding and awareness of the world in which we live and the people that we live with as a result. And as you think about then what were some of the other big events that happened through the course of that time in our history, the things we've learned about ourselves as a society, some of the social inequity that's come through as a result of where did case counts arise, depending on your demographic, the probability of you coming down with COVID, the risk of hospitalization. It's shown us a lot about things in our society that just have to change and have to be made better. And I think the challenge for leaders now is to understand that we are still uh, living with a pandemic. Oh, yeah. We are still living with case counts rising and new variants coming. We are still dealing with choices and challenges around public policy and vaccination requirement and restriction on travel, restriction on where and what facilities can open and to what degree. So we're not done by any means, but we still have to imagine the future of what does the next normal really look like and how will we create flexibility and choice for people to do that? Those are, in my mind, some of the big courageous choices that people are going to have to be willing to make. Thank you. Your your clients and your people, they must have, and they must still, obviously, feel so safe and respected. To me, the biggest one of the biggest lessons that the pandemic has taught us is the humanity factor, is that we we were so caught up perhaps with business and finance and economics that we were forgetting about the people behind it. And it was almost like this was given to us, I hate to say as a gift, but as a gift to stop and reset and rebuild with the right priorities in mind. Would you agree? Well, I would say that the challenge that COVID has presented to all of us is to examine how we do what we do, why we do what we do, and the different ways in which we can do things differently and better, both in terms of respecting ourselves, respecting our own well-being, respecting the world in which we live. And I'll take something as basic as travel. You know, we travel a lot. We're inherently, as as professional consultants, you know, spending time with clients at their premises, at their different locations. And all of us would have gotten into a habit of hopping on a plane to go and see somebody and flying back. What this period of time has shown us is that there's a lot that we can do virtually And not only is it better for the planet in terms of carbon emission, it's better for our own health and wellness. And it's also caused us to understand that when you can work virtually and when you can work remotely, where you work can be a very different question for people. As opposed to, well, naturally you would live in, pick your big major city. Well, why? One of the other things I think it will cause us to explore is what is the value of work and that that somewhat can decouple from a geography. So we've seen lots of examples of people who live in smaller communities in Canada being headhunted by firms from all over the world that aren't necessarily asking you to move. Mm. But all of a sudden, the notion of what work you do, who you work for, the price and the value of your work can be very different. Absolutely. I think there's been, there's been a lot of trust erosion Duncan, not within Deloitte, but as a general statement, what could leaders potentially do if there's been trust erosion within their organization? What what could they do differently, better, in a more enhanced way to rebuild some trust that we may have lost for whatever reason during the pandemic? 
Well, I think questions of trust, if we were honest with each other, began before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic created other issues of trust. So I, I go back and I look at some of the work that's done by someone like Sandra Sucre, who talks about trust in the context of competence, motives, means, and impact. So, you know, a foundation of trust is, do you know what you're doing? Do you have the skills, the capabilities, the training to actually do the thing you say you're going to do, right? Then you get into what are the motives behind why you're choosing to do it? Mm-hmm. Are you doing it for me? Are you doing it for us? Are you just doing it for your own selfish purposes? What is the perception that people have of the why behind that? And I think when you you thought about things that went on ahead of the pandemic, things like the business roundtable coming out and saying that the purpose of a corporation is more than just shareholder value, that there's a stakeholder and a societal expectation that all corporations have to live up to when the increasing importance of the environmental movement was understood prior to the pandemic and only accelerated in the pandemic. And then again, I think a lot of the early warning concerns that people were offering up, like Bill Gates' concerned about pandemics years before they happened, by just the, the nature of the choices that we were all making. And so again, I think this notion of what has been the choices we've made, what's the transparency of why we made them, and what were the risks that we were potentially taking on that we chose not to recognize? I think that's where people come back now and really question issues of trust and what is your motivation and by what means are you trying to get things done that all leaders are going to have to be prepared to be more open and transparent about. Excellent. Another great gift if we can look at it that way. ESG in Canada, environmental, social and governance factors, You've been fairly vocal about ESG in Canada, and maybe we've just touched on it with your last answer about that being accelerated through the pandemic. Can you speak to me a little bit about your feelings of what are the what's our moral duty around ESG in terms of our future? I think breaking ESG down into the context of our commitments around the environment and how are we creating long-term sustainable choices and options about the way in which we live the choices we make about, you know, how we ask people to transport themselves, what kind of infrastructure we're laying in for people to have real choices around that. I think that's important. I think there's there's questions at an individual level about what you can do around that. And there's choices at a business level. And that's why, you know, at Deloitte, we created a program that we called World Climate. And, and in doing that, we said, we are going to make certain decisions as an organization how much travel we ask of our people and how much time we spend working virtually versus working in person in thinking about issues of how do we power our buildings. All of that to me is extremely important. And when you then say from a social perspective, what are some of the real issues of social inequality, social equity that have arisen? I think it's important for us to be really clear about what does it look like to actually be doing much business much more inclusively And what does it mean to be a real community leader? And we did some thinking around what will it take for us to really continue to advance Canada as a society, advance Chile as a society. We have a future of Canada Centre and a future of Chile Centre. And the whole notion of making commitments around building more inclusive organizations and helping others to do the same. I think those are some of the, the choices that leaders are being called upon to make. And I think stakeholders will hold leaders to be account 
and will challenge the way in which organizations are going forward beyond just questions of, you know, advancing your own profit models. Absolutely. And you've been very vocal and you've chatted about the Indigenous community. I mean, with the environmental issues that the Indigenous community is facing and then layered on with the the unmarked graves that are being found and discovered, etc., the impacts of our environment are hitting the most vulnerable, as you've already said. What could we do as a society, Duncan, to try to do more for our Indigenous Canadians, to do more for our Indigenous communities? I, I interviewed Dr. Edmund Metatawaban, who's a Order of Canada recipient and also a residential school survivor. I was just shocked and appalled, and, and, and I was more shocked and appalled by, by me and my ignorance about it. What do you think we can do to try to help do more? Well, one of the things that we did at Deloitte before the pandemic was we launched um, a commitment towards Indigenous reconciliation, and we were the first major private organization to file a reconciliation action plan that really looked at issues of economic inclusion as being critical to the way in which we would help Indigenous people. And so it was Tabitha Bull that uh, was on Courage Incorporated, and, and the two of us were sort of chatting about what economic inclusion looks like and the different roles that business can play around that. And so we've made certain commitments from a, as an organization and the way in which we would look to increase the employment of Indigenous people. We've uh, talked more about education and ways in which Deloitte can help to contribute and support increasing uh, broad-based uh, avenues towards opportunity within various First Nations communities. We've talked about economic empowerment, and that's everything from our own supply chain, working with clients on their supply chain to help Indigenous-owned businesses to actually really be able to move forward uh, and more actively participate in the economy. And all of those, I think, are, are, are real choices that we need to make. We made a decision a couple of years ago that said, from, a, from the perspective of authentically being inclusive, uh, inclusion without diversity is hollow. And so we uh, have said that we are looking to have uh, our board and our leadership teams of our firm and then ultimately our whole organization reflect the diversity of Canada and Chile as it is today in terms of our people, in terms of our supply networks, and really trying to broaden the base of economic opportunity that we create through that. And these are, I think, the kinds of choices that people are looking for organizations to come out and talk about, commitments that they're looking to make, so that we can look forward to a future where more and more of Canada's population really sees a brighter economic future. One of the great moments in time with working with you at Deloitte University was the whole aspect of diversity and inclusion, which has been phenomenal. And you are, you guys are leading the space, but it's beyond gender. Absolutely. What else is involved? What else is involved when you say diversity and inclusion? So I would say to you that the, the four words that I, I talk about are diversity, which is uh, the full spectrum of uh, the differences we need to celebrate amongst each other. I think the notion of equity, which is really a question of, does everybody have a fair chance and a fair shot? Accessibility is one that we don't hear enough about. And that, to me, comes back to the notion of, for, for most of us who are generally able-bodied and go about lives day to day, we don't 
necessarily think enough about the incredible challenges and the incredible courage and spirit of people that have a physical disability and what they overcome every day in order to be able to economically participate in their society. Um, I don't know if you watched the closing of the Paralympic Games um, after the Olympic Games this year in Tokyo, but when they talked about you know, the inspiration that those games provide to the 1.2 billion people on our planet with a physical disability. I mean, there's a massive opportunity to unleash that talent in all countries of the world, certainly in Canada and in Chile, by creating the structures and the mechanisms and also asking the question, why? And I'll give uh, a shout out to my good friend, Vim Kochar. Uh, and the Center for People with Physical Disabilities, the incredibly tireless work that he's done around raising the awareness that a few years ago, no major public company in Canada had anyone with a physical disability on their board. None of them. That's, that's you know, a moment of let's just let that fact settle. And I had Vim Kochar's name on my wall. When I you see me looking up, it's because I've got notes on my wall. But he was the founder of CFPDP, so Canadian Foundation of Physically Disabled Persons, and you've partnered with him to make this, hey, everyone deserves a seat at the table. Absolutely. And that, to me, is what inclusion is really about. It's really about saying that different people have different interests, different aspirations, a different desire of how they want to see their life go forward, and all of that is great but they all need to have, in their own way, an equal chance for an equal seat at the table around whatever table they want to choose to sit at. And that, I think, is what all of us as leaders have to really ask ourselves. How are we helping to advance that within Canada and Chile today? And and when did Vim and yourself, Duncan, when did, when did the Canadian Foundation of Physically Disabled Persons, when did that launch well, I mean, Vim has been doing an outstanding job with his organization for many decades. I first got connected to Vim uh, perhaps about five years ago, and I was really inspired by his energy, his passion, his enthusiasm. And, you know, as, as many of us did in a pre-pandemic world, you know, we met through friends. He had some events. I attended them. We got to know each other. We'd go for lunch. We'd talk. And it was through that he had this idea of, I want to bring a certain number of people in corporate Canada together that can really help to advance the conversation of, how do we get everybody a seat at the table? And let's think about boards and boardrooms. Let's start there. Let's push there with a belief that if you could start at the level of governance and you could sort of push down through organizations, you could bring a different and a richer perspective to the issues that all organizations face, not just with respect to the issues of DEAI, but with respect to all issues in that organization. And, you know, we've had some amazing Canadians who have taken on some incredible roles within public service, taken on incredible roles in academia. They should be taking on incredible roles in corporate Canada and boardrooms and executive levels. And more of that, I think, will only make us stronger. And how is it going? Are you seeing advancements in the boardroom on boards that... This is this is working and making a big difference. So everything you and Vim are working towards, it's, it is it is making a difference. It, it it is, and I think again, you know, Deloitte did create an accessibility action plan similar to our reconciliation action plan, and it's it's at an earlier stage of its development. But 
all of us are, I think, needing to continue to raise the awareness of the issue, continuing to think about how we advocate and move people forward to be considered for, for positions and choices. And so Vim and, and the, t- the whole team around this have done an outstanding job of continuing to advance people forward. I'm really excited about some of the placements that have happened since Vim has been working on this. I think there's a lot more that we'll see continue to happen and evolve over the next five years. But I'm very encouraged by it, and I think it makes a great statement about um, the power of individuals with real vision and passion, bringing people around them, creating coalitions, and really advancing us forward. And I I believe that that's something in the post-pandemic world that all of us need to celebrate, which is the we're not waiting for government to come out with a program. We're not waiting for a new regulation. What we're looking towards is this sharing, this shared agenda that business, government, academia, community organizations can can work on together to create a much more inclusive and a much uh, stronger and better country for the future. Absolutely. So, Duncan, could I ask you a personal question? What do you do when you're not working? I mean, you've got a million job things and boards and more boards and more boards. Sure. What do you do? Where do you where do you find your strength, your inspiration? Is it like just not in the office? What do you do? What do you love? You know, I, I probably like many people, I would have said prior to the pandemic, travel. Yes. Um, but but that's that's changed. But I mean, look, in my day to day life, like many people, I mean, I I get up early every morning and I go for a walk. I, I happen to live. Uh, down by Lake Ontario in Toronto. And so I'll get up early. We'll, we'll take a walk around the lake and just sort of use it as a way to kind of, you know, settle my mind, think about the day, think about the week, you know, generally look after my own physical well-being. And from there, I'll sort of throughout the course of the day, spend time with family, spend time checking in with friends. Uh, again, you know, the the ability to sort of connect with people and you know, understand how they're doing is great. Um, my wife and I both like to read, and so we'll do that and share share books with one another. I suspect, uh, like many couples, uh, we've found many a favorite show on Netflix or Prime <laughs> or pick your favorite channel and and sort of binge watched our way through them, uh, as opposed to you know going out for an evening. But again, like like most people, I think there is this sort of balance that we're trying to create between our own personal well-being, our family well-being, and then the people that we connect with within our professional lives. And that's been a lot of what the pandemic's certainly been about for me, and I suspect for many people listening to your podcast. Absolutely. Yes, certainly for me and my husband and my family. Absolutely. Um, the kids, I say kids because they're younger than me. I read, I follow, obviously, I follow Deloitte on LinkedIn. There was an announcement that you had your new bright stars joining Deloitte. I forget what they're exactly called, but the new recruits coming into Deloitte. Absolutely. What do you see in their eyes? What do you see in terms of what they are looking for in an organization which might be vastly different than what you were looking for 33 years ago. I don't, I don't know, but what are they looking for in terms of a place they want to connect to, give their talent to? So much has shifted, and I just wondered your opinion about these bright new stars joining your firm. I would say that the, the big difference between, you know, when I joined this firm back in the 1980s and, and what I see today is that young people are much more connected 
You know, this is a generation that's grown up and been very comfortable, you know, with the internet, very comfortable with uh, social media platforms. And they're really, in my mind, looking for an organization that thinks well beyond its own profit model to what is its social conscience? What is its purpose? And, you know, at one time, you know, if you asked a, a leader of an organization, what's your purpose? They would say, you know, to look after our shareholders or to, you know, do this or this in a, in a legal and responsible way. People are looking for a lot more than that now. They're looking to really understand what is the soul of the organization? What is it that you truly believe in? And are you living authentically towards that? And, I, and certainly in this world today and with all the transparency that goes on out there, um, you, you have to uh, understand as, as leaders of organizations that you are accountable for each of the choices that you make. And I give a lot of credit to Sharon Thorne. She's the chair of our global board. She said, I need every global board member to make a commitment towards the environment because I want to be able for all of us to vote and talk about what that commitment is. It doesn't matter what it is, but what is it? Yeah. And, you know, my wife and I made the decision that, you know, just given our lifestyle and where we live, uh, we didn't need to be a two-car family. So I sold my car. And I use a lot more public transport. I walk more. It's a way of trying to making a contribution towards reducing our own carbon emissions as a family. And whatever those choices are, going out and doing that and talking about it, being open to it, when young people will come up and, and ask me about, you know, so what do you think about this? What do you do about that? What's different because of, these are the things I can talk about. Yes. And, and I think those are the kinds of open, honest, transparent conversations that people are looking for. Another person I'll give a lot of credit to is our CEO, Anthony Veal. And when he came in in 2019 as, as our CEO, and, and by the way, you know, what a time to, to take on the reins <laughs> of a two and a half billion dollar organization and sort of lead it right into a pandemic. Anthony, right? you had no idea what you were saying. Exactly. And yet has done, a, has done a brilliant job. But one of the things that, that he did was he really began to use uh, social media platforms as a way to really try to flatten the organization and make it much easier for people to sort of pop into chat rooms and ask me anything sessions and really, you know, both learn from the kind of questions that were asked, but then also be very open and transparent with people about what we think. And I think, I think those are things that young people are looking for today, for sure. Yes. And I've been reading and learning a lot about this this thing called the great resignation and that there's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of talent that is looking to make moves to organizations from organizations to organizations based on their values based on what they stand for based on the commitments that align with their values and so good for you and good for Deloitte and good for all of the leaders inside Deloitte because You've been out first in paving the way. Well, and you know, Marilyn, I suspect if you and I went back and talked to our younger selves, I think we wanted to be able to create change. I think we wanted to be heard, but it was hard to know how, mm -hmm. right? In a, in a pre-internet world, in a world before cell phones, I mean, you know, people will, will, will chuckle, but, you know, in a world before even voicemail or email. Absolutely. When everything was, you know, typed up memos and photocopied and handed around, you know, how you could bring people together, how you could have conversations. I mean, you know, starting out this as sort of a virtual coffee. Well, there was no virtual coffee. We, we physically had to go meet and have coffee together and talk. 
And so it was hard to figure out who shared your ideas, who shared your views. Today, it's easy to mm-hmm. understand that you can be part of a, of a movement that sort of cuts across geographic boundaries, cuts across, you know, different uh, demographics. And so, again, I think that's a, a very powerful way for people to understand, you know, where can I find my voice? And am I working in an organization? Am I living in a community that wants to be respectful of different ideas. It doesn't mean that every idea has to be implemented or acted on, but it, it means that they at least have to believe that they've been considered and there was the thoughtful discussion about how and why choices have been made. So, Duncan, within Deloitte, how do you, the leaders within Deloitte, or the organization as a whole, how do you foster courage? How do you foster bravery within your organization, because you are leaders in so many facets, just listening to all the wonderful things that you've initiated before the world really had their head around that it needed to be initiated. But what do you think about courage within your own organization? How do you foster that? From my perspective, Marilyn, it it begins by leading with example, and then again begins by open and transparent discussion with people about it. And one of the things that our CEO, Anthony Veal, talks about is giving people lots of freedom within a frame. So we're 350,000 people around the world. We've got you know, a little over 14,000 people in Canada and Chile. To, to suggest that everybody could sort of show up every day and do whatever they wanted, you know, you'd have chaos. You have to have structures. You have to have some process. You have to have job descriptions. You have to have different roles that people play in the organization. Everybody gets that. But within that role... What is the freedom to make decisions, make choices, and do you feel empowered to do that? And do you feel inspired that you're working with people that are going to respect the choice you've made? And that doesn't mean that I would necessarily agree with your choice. It doesn't mean that I would have made your choice, but it means I respect that you had a reason why you believed it was the right choice to make. And I think it's critically important that leaders sort of represent, reflect, and sort of amplify the importance of that to the people around them. And again, when we were able to sort of physically be together, one of the things that we did early on uh, was we created very open office space. So when I took on this role in 2018, uh, I'd occasionally I'd, I'd have lunch with a group of people or dinner or wherever, and people would say, oh, you must have an amazing office. And I said, oh, we've got a wonderful office building and blah, 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 blah. And I go, yeah, but what about your office? And I was like, I don't have one. And people didn't believe I love this, Duncan. I love it. There's me. no ivory tower. There's no corner office. There's no football field no. of a coffee no. table situation no. going on there. No. I, 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 you know, show up. Well, I showed up for the <laughs> pandemic and, and, you know, wandered around the place like everybody else. And, and when people see people doing that and working in different spaces and collaborating or, you know, sitting on a bench in someplace having a coffee and sort of, you know, chatting, uh, it really does create a different culture. It creates a different connection amongst people. And, you know, one of the things I used to like to do actually was I would, you know, go and sit on different floors at different days and in coffee areas and, you know, work away on my own stuff and people would come by and say hi. And uh, again, you know, you can just ask a few questions. What do you think about the place? What do you think about this? How do you like that? How's the coffee? Whatever it is. And, and you would get, some pretty open, candid conversations going. 33 years ago, I can't imagine meeting the chairman of a firm. I can't imagine meeting a CEO. I don't think I even met, you know, a managing partner of my office back in Edmonton for about the first year I worked in the place. Hmm. And again, the way we're trying to 
to shift and change the way people experience an organization and the culture together is really important. And, and being open to that and being responsive to that, I think, is, is incredibly important in terms of how people see themselves and hear themselves reflected in their organization. One of the things I, I used to love about walking around the halls was just the sheer diversity of, of the languages that I'd hear. Yeah. Because, you again, you have people of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, collaborating, coming together, engaging with friends, and just, you know, again, sort of celebrating, hey, isn't it amazing just how rich and diverse this organization is and the kind of incredible talent that we're able to to bring together as a result and the respect that we're able to show each other. And that, again, I think is, is part of what I think really helps to create a powerful organization coming forward. Well, and you can, it's palpable inside the Deloitte office building that I've experienced, which is in Toronto. But I very much remember a day where I had the privilege as an external facilitator for you of teaching and all of the wonderful tech people who who just make things happen in, in the most magical of ways came into the classroom and were setting up a table with microphones and, and headsets and all different kinds of things. And I said, well, well, what is all this for? And they said, well, we have a group of French guests today and we also have a group of Spanish guests. And so we always offer them the option of putting on the headsets and learning in the language that they would prefer to learn in. And without anybody asking for it, without it was just Deloitte. That we just we just do this because we respect you and we want to offer you this opportunity. And it was to me the funniest thing in the world where the Spanish students, they were partners, but I'd call them students for that day. And the French students, everybody said no. And I'm like, why? Well, because we want to practice our English. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. You're learning stuff in a language which is not the first language for you, and you have a chance to sort of take an easier path. Nope. We want to practice. Thanks so much. But they were so complimented and delighted that they were respected enough that you 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 just it just happens. Just this is just the way Deloitte is. Well, it, it's important. I think the the word you used about respect is really the issue. I mean, I I remember. When I became a partner in 1998, and I went to a global new partner seminar that year, it happened to be in Paris. Mm. And it was a wonderful meeting, and there were 500 new partners from around the world, and we were all getting together. And the entire meeting was in English. Hmm. So we were in France, Mm -hmm. but everything was in English. The signage, the menu cards, everything was in English. And in fact, there was a point made that the language of this firm is English. Hmm. About a month later, I went to my first Canadian partners meeting as a new partner. It was in Toronto, and the entire meeting was in English and French. And after we combined with Chile, we now do things in English and French and Spanish. Yes. And I have business cards in English and French and Spanish because I'm representing uh, the the languages of the firm that I'm a part of, the cultures that uh, have created this firm. And, you know, I feel very, very honored to play the role that I get to play. And I feel very um, satisfied with the way in which we're able to work together as an organization. And it's important that I actively try to respect all of the people in this organization in the different ways that I can, in the ways that I engage, the ways that we reach out, the way that we celebrate the, the different 
customs and traditions of people that we have within our firm. And certainly that's not what I experienced when I joined 33 years ago. Absolutely. And I was always struck by that when I went to Europe, that in Europe, especially when you watch the kids in Europe, it's like, parlez-vous français, sprechen-sie deutsch, hablas espagnol. I'm not trying to be impressive. This is about all I got. But they are almost like a channel changer that it's like, oh, I can do English, I can do French, I can do Spanish, I can do German. Right. And taking my kids and exposing them to that at a young age, we're like, oh, okay, now I understand why I really should pay attention in my French class because it's not all about us and it's not all about English. Let's move to innovation. So the same type of question I feel and have had some experience with Deloitte around, you guys are really cutting edge and leaders in the whole innovation space. How do you foster that? Because there's so many organizations that I talk to that are like, oh, checkbox innovation. We have a chief innovation officer. We're not sure what they do. We we don't really ask them what they do. Um, sometimes we send them to conferences that have funny names that talk about innovation. But you guys live it. You actually do it and and live it like the other values we've talked about. But let's talk about innovation for, for a little bit. Well, in my opinion, innovation comes down to thinking about how we work and how do we work differently and how do we work better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's different ways to sort of think about what innovation is and, uh, you know, the innovation of someone looking at through a telescope and discovering that, wow, you know, the sun doesn't go around, the earth goes around the sun. We don't do a lot of that. But what we do is we look at ideas, we look at opportunities, we look at new ways of trying to solve issues within uh, the lives of our clients, the lives of our people within our society more broadly, and we say, how can we do this better? How can we get to a greater outcome? Or how can we use data and analysis to really better understand what the real issues are so we can bring the right people around trying to solve them? And one thing that we did at the, at the sort of emerging era of artificial intelligence and really understanding how do we as an organization have to get our minds around this was we said, rather than having different aspects of the problem being looked at by different groups of people, let's bring all these people together. Let's focus them within a different part of our organization. Let's give them a different leadership framework. And then let's really challenge them to see what are the practical, implementable ideas that we can create out of this. So that when you actually go back to a client, to a member of the firm, to a group within society and say, this will help to solve this. This will help to make this better. This will give us insight to better understand how to deal with something. And this will actually make us more effective. And that, I think, is where you know, innovation in the context of uh, being more productive, creating more meaningful work for people because you can take more routinized work and you can um, cause it to, to be done differently. I think all of those are things that I think enrich and strengthen an organization and they enrich and strengthen a community. Excellent. Thank you. And professionally, personally, here's where I'm going to go. Can you tell me a story about a brave moment for you, Duncan? Like people that I speak to about bravery, I'm sure this is the same with you in terms of courage. They, in the moment, they're like, no, actually it was just kind of stupid. <laughs> I just ran into the fire because I didn't really think about it. But yeah, in hindsight, I guess it was bravery. What scares you? What was a brave day for you in your life? 
something you might want to share a story about? Well, uh, well, there's there's a few that I could I could chat about, but I, I guess what I would say is for me, the, the difference between being courageous and being reckless is I, I think people who are courageous fully understand the risks they're taking, and they fully understand the downside of what could happen. But if you're ultimately doing what's right, you know you have to do it anyway. And you have to keep pushing on and you have to keep doing everything you can to create it, knowing that it may not be popular, knowing that it could you know, create you know, some challenging and difficult times, but we'll all get to a better answer. Yeah. And I, and I think that is, is you know, one of the areas that you, you know, it's important for all of us to sort of think back on in terms of um, you know, how do you live with that? I mean, you know, moments of my life that were really challenging, that really tested me. I mean, I was working with a team of people out of the country when 9-11 happened. Because at the time of recording this, of course, we're just coming up on the anniversary of 9-11, 20th anniversary of it. And, you know, I had a, I had a young team of about eight people from a couple of different countries. And we were all working out of the country in a remote location. And all of a sudden, we were just cut off from the world. Can I ask where you were, Duncan? Like, yeah, we were we were all working down on the island of Cuba for a client there. Okay, and I had people from Mexico, and I had people from the Dominican, I had people from Canada. We were all there, and uh, in Cuba at that time, the telecommunications infrastructure wasn't very strong, so we knew that the buildings had been hit, and then the phone lines were overwhelmed, and we couldn't actually call out to family, call out to to our offices back where we lived for about a day. We were just cut off. And yet, you know, by you know, going to hotels and, and, you know, seeing TV set up in lobbies and continuous CNN feeds in Spanish flowing by, you had a sense of what was going on, but not perhaps the enormity. But this was a group of people that were just cut off. And, you know, I'm the partner. Yeah, they're so young. You're the leader, right? So, I, you know, and, and a much younger leader than, than I am now. Uh, but, you know, keeping that group of people together, keeping us together as a team, keeping people calm, letting people talk, you know, exploring options, exploring choices, figuring out what to do. Uh, we eventually went to the Canadian embassy. We found a way to have people contact their families. We found a way for people to be able to keep moving forward as we we lived through that experience. And then over time, you know, figured out how are we actually going to get people home? So were people open and honest with you at this point about being scared, about wondering what's going on in the world? And so here was the moment of, I'm a leader, but I'm transparent with you. And I'm going to tell you that I'm kind of scared too. Absolutely. And, and, and the fact is, well, what happened? Why do you think it happened? What are we, uh, and you know, one of the hardest things for any of us to have to do is to just be honest with people and say, I have no idea. Right. We're just going to have to figure this out together. Right. You know, we're, we're safe. We have a place to stay. We have food. You know, we're we're not in any immediate threat or danger. We don't know. We don't know what's what. We don't know what will happen. All we know is right now we're going to do everything we can to keep each other safe and protected. And that's that was you know an example of an experience of truly the unexpected. And then what do you do? And and I can feel that because it, it, if you're not transparent, you're not honest about not knowing. People can feel that. People can tell that. But we, I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking and talking about the, this whole idea of not knowing. Because as we move forward, who knows? What we, what we certainly have learned is we don't know what we don't know. 
with a pandemic that's hit and we don't know what tomorrow will look like, never mind next week, next month. That's right. Duncan, what advice would you give to anybody going into a leadership position for the first time now, just as, you know, Anthony Vale stepped in at 2019, but anybody right. going into a, a, a serious leadership position right now, what would you say to them? What advice would you give given your experience and lived experience and the roles that you've played within Deloitte? Well, I, I think if I went back to it and I, and I and I began my answer, Marilyn, by saying that if there was anything about the pandemic that I think history will judge all of us on is we all waited too long to actually start dealing with the issue that was in front of us. Mm. You know, we knew in January that there was something called COVID. We knew that there were people becoming sick in China. We knew that there were people who'd gotten on planes and flown to Canada and brought COVID here. Mm. And yet we didn't really begin to lock ourselves down and look to protect ourselves until two months later in March. And, you know, candidly, had we acted faster, maybe we could have mitigated more of what happened. But there's always this tension of, well, how bad will it be? Do we, am I overreacting? Am I this, am I that? And I think part of courage is to really look and assess the situation honestly and say, all right, what are the different scenarios in front of me? But then what's the right choice for me to make? And if if I had a regret, it is we should have acted faster. And I would say, if I had any advice for any new leaders that are taking on new leadership roles in whatever kind of organization, you know, have good people around you, listen to them carefully, um, be self-aware, exercise self-control so that you're open and listening to others, but then don't be afraid to act and don't be afraid to do what you believe is right. One of the things that um, we we believed was really important was that as the pandemic began to evolve, that we stayed very closely coordinated globally in the choices that we made. And we, we shared the value that looking after and protecting our people first was critical. And we have held on to that uh, throughout the entire 18-month period. Uh, and I, I would say that the second was we had to look at how do we find ways to creatively support our clients and the communities in which we live, live through this, and find different ways to be supportive in whatever ways we could. That, again, I think is about a shared commitment, a shared value that will resonate, that does resonate with people. So the transparency and the authenticity around that, I think, was really important. Then it really became a question of saying, well, how do we reimagine this organization going forward from what we've learned through this? So the challenge of COVID uh, certainly has been significant on all of us. And what used to frustrate me in my in my earlier days of leadership is people who, for whatever reason, didn't believe they could act, didn't believe they could speak up, hmm. and would go and make choices, make decisions, and then you'd come along later and you would try to find a way to deal with it uh, after the fact as opposed to trying to deal with it in the moment. And I'm hoping that, you know, through the the new way of working that we have where we absolutely support people in their choice to say, I want to work remotely. I feel safer doing that. It's working for my lifestyle. I've got, you know, different family responsibilities that have arisen because of the pandemic that I now need to manage and deal with, whether that's childcare or elder care or whatever it might be. And and that I believe is something that will continue past the pandemic. And I think that's a very positive thing. 
equally, we'll have people who will say, I can't wait till I can come back and see all my colleagues and I can't wait until we can mm-hmm. go for coffee and I can't wait until we can. And again, you know, we're looking for ways to be able to create those environments for people in a way that is safe and secure and appropriate given the commitments we have to people's well-being and also the well-being of the planet. Thank you. Courage Incorporated, your podcast. I'm using the word brave, you're using the word courage, and we're having different kinds of conversations with different kinds of people. But I want to promote your podcast. So here's the shameless, Duncan, please tell- Shameless plug. Yeah, please give us the little infomercial, if you will, about Courage Incorporated so that our listeners can check out this podcast um, because I've checked it out and I love it. Well, thank you. And, and again, Marilyn, it was wonderful chatting with you today. And thank you so much for having me as a guest on Breaking Brave. Uh, Courage Incorporated was, was really started, as you said, about a year ago uh, in partnership with the Walrus Lab in, in looking to bring different Canadian leaders into a conversation about the courageous choices they made to help to advance our society going forward in different dimensions. You mentioned Tabitha Bull. She's doing an amazing job at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business in terms of raging, raising people's awareness around Indigenous issues, Indigenous uh, economic inclusion, and helping to create a better future for a critically important part of our country. And at the same time, we've also had the opportunity of talking about leaders from other ethnic communities in our country. We've had a chance to talk about people who provide leadership in the area of small and medium-sized business We've had a chance to talk to thought leaders who are looking at issues of Canada-U.S. relations, as well as looking at the, you know, the broader sort of what's next for Canada and some of the broader commitments we have around the environmental, social, and governance needs that we face. So season two will be starting up in about another sort of six weeks or so. Uh, we'll again have another roster of some pretty interesting folks to, to hear from. And again, Marilyn, want to thank you for the opportunity of chatting with you today and look forward to our ongoing conversations. And at some point in the future when we can, and it's safe, being able to see you in person. And I very much look forward to that. Thank you, Duncan. I couldn't have closed with a more concise, lovely, beautiful message. Thank you very much, Duncan Sinclair, Chair of Deloitte Canada and Chile, for joining us on Breaking Brave today. Thank you all. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.